Well, I gave a big pitch this morning about returning to the book of Jeremiah tonight, and it didn't attract any new people to come in the evening, so I'm kind of free to do what I want, and in a real sense, I thought that because um, we had folks away who are usually here in the evening, we'd defer Jeremiah for a week and try to do it all together when uh, Ed and Sue are back with us, and uh, I, I thought of the, the ministries of the morning, and I thought of uh, perhaps an edifying direction to go in this evening. Um, after the morning message, when I'm sorry, after the Sunday school, when we looked at Paul's own accounts of his hardships, all the problems he went through from so many different directions and in so many different ways, um, Tim said to me, you know, that would be a great passage to read. Uh, to people who come from a little bit different perspective on how the Christian life is to be lived. And I know that in your mind was the people that advocate this idea that if you're a Christian, troubles don't really follow you. Difficulties and hardships are really not a a problem because God desires our wealth, our health, our prosperity, um, every single blessing in this this world, so that there's hardly any difference between this world and the world to come. we haven't fully seen the restoration of all righteousness and the restoration of um, Edenic conditions. We're not in the garden and we won't be until Jesus comes back again. And when I thought of Tim's statement and also thought of the morning message that also emphasized our Lord Jesus' warning that um, people think they're doing your service to God by killing you. you know, they're going to cast you out of their, their assemblies. They're going to not treat you well. Uh, this is a, a firm warning, uh, preparing the people uh, for what was to come, um, and that they wouldn't stumble, they wouldn't become disillusioned about Jesus and his ministry because he, he made promises that he didn't keep, because he doesn't make promises that speak of abiding uh, health and wealth and prosperity and all the rest, as if affliction was not also part of the life of God's people. And I thought when Tim said, we can read them that passage, yeah, we can read them that. We could also read them the morning passage from John chapter 16. In fact, why don't we just throw a whole Bible at them and say, here, read this. Actually read this. Read it with your own eyeballs and not just what people tell you is in it where they look and search for passages that they twist out of its context in order to make a case for a prosperity gospel in which the true prosperity of the saints that does not consist in necessarily material wealth but it's really the prosperity of our relationship with God a prosperity that flows out of our relationship with God that gives us rich abundant and abiding relationships with others in our families in our in our communities in the church Um, this is where the blessing of God is to be seen it can't be measured in material wealth. And it's an easy thing, and people have thought it throughout history, that the mark of God's smile is prosperity, is health, wealth, and all kinds of material blessing. Some people say that's the Puritan ethic. I don't really think it was the Puritan ethic. I think the Puritans understood that as a result of hard work, God does give reward. But it's labor in the sweat of our brow. It's hard work that we're called upon to do. And there's no guarantee of a harvest. There's no guarantee of fruitful seasons. Because the same sovereign God who brings rain and fruitful seasons is also the God who can withhold them. Who brings drought and who brings trouble even to people who are walking with him. 
even to people who are righteous before him. There is simply no guarantee in all of scripture that if we serve God and please God and obey God, everything will go well. These people just haven't read Genesis 3. They haven't read the reality of the fall. They haven't read the reality of exile from Eden. They haven't read the reality that God says, because of the curse that he places upon the earth, because of man's sin, that he will put enmity between the woman and the serpent. But not just that. He's going to put this enmity, this hostility, this um, opposition to exist between what's called the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The serpent has descendants. The serpent has spiritual children. And they're the wicked of the world. They're the people who do not honor God or serve God. They're the people who are really the descendants of Cain. The Cainites that we read about in the ensuing chapters in Genesis chapter 4. And then we read about the Sethites in chapter 5 who are the ones that called upon the name of the Lord. Those are the righteous people. So right from the beginning we see that God's made a distinction in the world. There's division, there's hostility that exists. Not just because sin brings suspicion and sin brings distance between people it does but God brings a positive enactment of enmity and says I'm calling out for myself a people and when I call out for myself a people who will be my faithful servants they're going to find hostility in the face of a, of a cruel and wicked heartless world and the prime example of that is simply Cain and Abel right then and there of both of them bringing offerings unto the Lord and yet one not bringing an offering in faith Hebrews 11 makes that the distinction. It's not the kind of offering. One brought animal offering, one brought the fruit, the, the grain. They brought the fruit of their labors. And one was a farmer and one was a, a tiller of the soil. And they brought what was just the fruit of their labors. And that would have been received by God if it was brought in the right way. But one was brought in faith and one was brought in righteousness and the other was brought in unbelief and the other was brought to bring anything at hand and he didn't really care whether he had favor with God or not. Because he was a wicked person. And he was just going through the motions of religious service. Not because he really sought to honor God. And so there is that division that exists in the world. And you go through the biblical, the biblical history. And you have droughts that come in seasons where God's people are faithful in walking with the Lord. It's one of the reasons God brought them down into Egypt. He brought Abraham down into Egypt in chapter 20. Of, um, of, uh, of Genesis and then of course the whole family goes down into Egypt because of drought conditions again the promised land was not always you know abundant because it was the land that needed God's constant care and watering and when the people of the land were not people that pleased him droughts came there were seasons of poverty and, and, and scant uh, uh, provisions uh, harvests were not necessarily abundant when the Canaanites roamed the land, when they were doing act, acts that God abominated, and it was just some generations until the iniquity of the Amorite would be full, and that people would have the judgment of God that would expel them from the land. God says the very land itself would vomit them out. It's a very graphic picture of, the, of just the wickedness of that people. And, um, but you have the picture of even the righteous suffering under such conditions like that, having to go down into Egypt to find grain. And uh, though God was pleased to raise up Joseph to a place of second in command in Egypt, that did not mean that the descendants of Joseph and the descendants of Jacob would have the similar 
um, honors. No, they're cast into slavery. They're made to suffer uh, hardship and cruel bondage under the taskmasters of Pharaoh, even though they were the covenant people of God. And um, we might say, well, they forgot God. They forgot his worship. Well, that's true. But even when God brings them out and God reminds them that they're his people, he brings them on eagles' wings to himself, what are they doing? They're going through wilderness lands. They're going through uh, times when their only hope was that God would make provision, that God would send manna daily to meet their needs, that God would cause water to come out of the rock. It was a difficult world these people lived in. And we shouldn't think otherwise. And then God brought them into the land of promise, that land flowing with milk and honey. And even then, there was judgments that came upon them as a result of their sin, their forgetfulness of God. There was no paradise restored. There was no garden that was restored in its fullness. Yes, it was considered to be like the Garden of Eden because of God's care of it and God's promises with respect to it. But it was a promise never really fulfilled. And then you think of all the people that the Bible tells us about, and none of them experienced life without troubles, without conflict, without difficulties, without scarcity, without just all the things that are common to people in a fallen world. And if you have any questions about that, think of Job. I mean, Job was a man that Scripture tells us was a man who served God. He was a man perfect in his generations. There was nothing of evil in, in, in Job. He was, a, he was a righteous man. He sought to serve God, honor God, remember God, even to, even to give sacrifices for his children that might have forgotten God in the midst of their partying and their revelries. And that did not stop Job from having everything uh, taken away from him. And uh, again, you know, we might say, well, Book of Job is telling us this lesson or that lesson. At the end of the day, we just don't know why God did what he did. Why God allowed Satan to do what he allowed Satan to do with respect to Job. But we know it wasn't because of Job was a bad man. And he deserved it. It wasn't that God's looking to get to put hardships on him. without uh, He had his reasons. Perhaps it's something in the extent where the devil said or Satan said, does, God serve, does Job serve God for nothing? Maybe God was looking to prove, yeah, he does serve God for nothing. Whether he gets nothing in return, he will say, naked I came into this world, naked I'm going to leave it. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we take evil from the hand, good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? Uh, you know, he, he refused to curse God. He refused to lay a charge at God, at God, although he does curse the day of his birth. And he does feel that God has not dealt with him justly and that he might come before him and plead his cause. And he got all the comforters and they got their ideas of how all this works in a, in, in a fallen world. And uh, they had what you might think was good theology. So, evil acts brings, brings, brings judgment, brings chastisement. Uh, I think a lot of people who would rate them very high in our theological understanding. And yet at the end of the day, God says of the comforters, they didn't speak what was right concerning like my servant Job. Job, even in his lamentations, Job, even in his complaints, uh, seemed to have more understanding than the people who had this idea. If you serve God, things are going to go well, Job, and so you haven't served God, and that's why things are collapsing around you. That simply wasn't true. God does not take the side of Job's comforters to explain the world in that way. And again, ultimately, we don't know what all of God's reasons. They're hidden in his own sovereign hand of 
of, of wisdom and justice and there's no accounting of the ways of God with men. God has a perfect right to do as he wills and that's the point of the latter chapters when God shows up and says where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth can you explain the way the world works uh, Job and Job said I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you and I see what reality is I see reality is in the light of a God who does as he wills and God does as he wills in the armies of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth and that never at any time at any point in the history of God's dealings with the nation of Israel meant that troubles would not occur David was a man that experienced troubles he's a man who, who, who um, was after God's own heart he's the sweet psalmist of Israel and yet when you read the psalms that David wrote what are those psalms about how have my enemies increased I was thinking of an old song of uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention back in the 1960s. So you see what my, my, my formative years were like, listening to music like that. But there's one song, for some reason I'm thinking of these things, it's coming back to my mind again and again and again. The refrain was, there's no way to delay the trouble coming every day. There's no way to delay the trouble coming every day. And you watch the TV and you expect good things to come and all you see is trouble upon trouble upon trouble upon trouble. One of Joe's comforters says, man is born into trouble as the, flocks, as the sparks fly upward. And that's theologically correct. We're in a fallen world and there's no way to delay the troubles coming every day. The book of the Psalms, the book of songs, the book of celebration, the book that's used in the worship of the people of God. When you look at the type of Psalms that are in the book of Psalms, what type of Psalms are they? From the way people would tell it, it's celebration and praise the Lord and hallelujah. Yeah, there are those Psalms. They come mostly at the end of the book. But the overwhelming majority are lamentations. They're complaints. There's the saints crying out, how long, O Lord? How long will these conditions exist? When will you show up for us? We seem to be devastated at every point, at every turn. There's personal lamentations, there's communal lamentations. Sometimes there's lamentations that are decrying the reality of sin, those uh, those, um, penitential psalms that we speak of. But there's all kinds of troubles in the world, not just personal sin. Just the reality that we live in a world in which people are hostile to God and hostile to the righteous. And God seems, Psalm 73 says, this seems to give the unrighteous happy lives, easy deaths. And God's people struggle every day. And how is this right? And again, it, 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 it seems as though things are not right and God if he showed up would certainly balance the books and, but yet in this life the books are not going to be fully balanced they won't be fully balanced till perfect equity comes in a day when God judges the world in righteousness then everything will be made right and God's in the business of looking to make everything right through Christ, through the gospel, through his people but yet the f- final uh, making of all things right will be when Christ returns and not before we still live in a world in which much is wrong and we have to live with that reality so I just don't know what part of the Bible people find that there's health, wealth and prosperity promised to the people of God it's not in the stories of the patriarchs it's not in the stories of the 
the uh, captivity in Egypt. It's not in the point of the wilderness wanderings. It's not when the people of Israel entered into the land of promise. It's not in terms of the lives of the kings, even the best of them. Uh, just the history of Israel is one calamity after another calamity, one battle against foreign enemies, the enemies within, enemies without. Um, and then you have the final exile of the people into Babylon. You have the, the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. Simply there's no way to delay the trouble coming every day. It's in the book of the Psalms throughout. It's in every part of the of, 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 uh, of the Old Testament. In a real sense when you read about Job and you read about Jeremiah and you read about all these things. Really, these are books that were written to people devastated by the reality of the world in sin. They're traumatized by the warfares that came about when their whole culture was turned upside down with, with, with the invading uh, um, empires of the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians. And they're traumatized people. And God gives us in his word a book of hope. A book of survival to people in the midst of trauma. The Bible's the perfect book for the people at, the, at Grand Zero when those buildings fell. It's a book that's given to people in trauma. Even the Jewish people that went through the Holocaust and went into the concentration camps, and I'm hoping I didn't lose Mike, but I lost him off of my, Yeah, he's still there. <laughs> It was the Psalms that saw many of those people through. It was just the reality that they knew that they're not the first generation to experience this sort of thing. Maybe it's with a greater intensity than other times, but still it's just a difference of degree, not a difference in kind. Well, the New Testament changes everything, doesn't it? New Testament brings us into a whole different scene of things. And again, give them the Bible. Give them the book. Tell them, read it. Where do you find it? When Jesus is born, you find Herod killing infants again. You find Rachel weeping for her children with that devastation of what Pharaoh did to the infant children in Egypt happening again. Again, human empire coming against the kingdom of God. You see Jesus in his public ministry. Beginning it in the greater Galilean ministry, it says right after John was in prison. When John was placed in prison, then Jesus came into Galilee. Already the servants of God are being opposed. The servants of God are being persecuted by civil authorities, by the religious authorities. And Jesus, when he begins his ministry and goes up onto the mountain, he speaks the words of the Beatitudes. What does he include in those Beatitudes? It's not just that blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the mourners and blessed are the meek and blessed are the hungers and thirsters right, after righteousness and, and the merciful and the peaceable and the pure. But it's blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For you're just in good company. You're in good company with the righteous. Again, we live in a world which is enmity between the, the righteous and the wicked. Between the people of God and those who look to kill him. Great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the, the prophets that were before you. The world hasn't changed. When Jesus sends his disciples out to preach, what does he tell them? 
says, I send you as, as uh, sheep in the midst of wolves. And they're, they're going to mistreat you. You're going to be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Don't be surprised at this. The disciple is not above his, 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 his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then we see Jesus give those warnings really throughout his public ministry but also in, in particular that concentrated teaching about persecution and opposition that we looked at this morning from John chapter 16 in the farewell discourse and then we see it play out in the book of Acts where do you see in the book of Acts that the people of God are trouble free that they're rich and they're prosperous no no the church came in amongst the people where famines were continual realities, where the people, in order to enable others to sustain a decent way of life, they what did they do? They sold their possessions and goods. Because they loved the people in Jerusalem that were suffering persecution, and that were needy, and that were famine-stricken. And so they had possessions and goods, and they said, if that can be turned into cold cash, and food, and shelter, and clothing... For the needy people of God, they're going to give their possessions to the church. That distribution will be made to the needs of the saints. That the widows would not suffer. Wait a minute, weren't these faithful widows? Why didn't they have money problems? They ought to be prospering. Didn't they give away their seed faith and God restored it 20-fold? I mean, that's what you're being told today. It's nonsense. The church had a continual ministry to the poor. Why? Because as Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. Jesus didn't say, no, we're living in a new world. This is a new covenant. Everything's changed. There might have been poverty in the Old Testament. There's no poverty in the New Testament. That's nonsense. That's why there were compassion ministries. We see in the book of Acts. That's why there were deacons that were appointed to oversee the ministry to the needy widows. Where do you find the absence of poverty? Where do you find the absence of need? Where do you find the absence of persecution and opposition and and hatred? Again, you see the disciples brought before the authorities. They're threatened. They're beaten. They They counted an honor to be dishonored for his name. Paul is a persecutor coming against the church, breathing threats and slaughter against the people of God, putting to death Stephen, going to foreign cities, seeking to bring believers back to Jerusalem in chains, to imprison them, to put them to death, to cause them to blaspheme. That was what he was after. He was after getting Christians to curse the name of Jesus, that they would commit blasphemy. He was an injurious person. He was a hurtful person. He was a person who was out for blood. Then he's converted, and what happens? They're all after him. He's now the one, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. And we read about his hardships throughout his letters. And you know what you can do? You can go through all of his letters, and you know what? You'll find in all of his letters reference made to suffering. It's the great theme of the apostolic letters, that suffering is not something that is rare and uncommon, or only pertaining to people who have little faith. No. All during, through the letters, there are sick people that Paul's concerned about. Wait a minute, aren't they supposed to be healed by faith? Well, apparently there was this guy, Epaphroditus, who was close to death. 
And Paul writes in the Philippian letter about his concern for him. He was near to death, and, and his heart was broken. And God not only raised up Epaphroditus from a sickbed where he was near to death, he raised up Paul's spirit. He was so wrapped up in concern for that fellow servant. And no miracle was performed to heal him. You have just the reality of imprisonment. Paul's letters, many of them were written um, from prison. Many of them uh, just speak of the reality of imprisonments and troubles and sufferings. Make statements like, the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed to us. He speaks about, and what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, shall persecution, shall nakedness, shall famine, sword. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. In all these things, it doesn't exist. In all these things, it doesn't pertain to Christians. He says, all these things pertain to Christians. Tribulation, famine, persecution, nakedness, sword. They all pertain to Christians. And he says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors to him who loved us. So just the thought that uh, you know, God's people live through life in some way in which we're exempted from the hardships of the world and the troubles of the world and the sufferings of the world. It just doesn't fit the biblical witness. It doesn't fit Jesus. These things did not apply to Jesus. Despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Didn't have a place to lay his head. Didn't have a home to call his own. Living out the beneficence of, of friends and, and women and, and people that went along with him and supplied their needs. And then living that life, not only of poverty in this world and of identifying with the poor and the needy and the outcasts and the nobodies, being the friend of publicans and sinners and all the ways in which our Lord was just derided and disdained and, and uh, spoken evil of because of his heart of mercy towards uh, not the people in high places but the, you know, the people in the low places and we read Mary's Magnificat God's going to turn everything upside down of the rich and the poor and the, and those that are advantage and those that are disadvantage and Jesus speaking from Isaiah chapter 61 of uh, coming to open up the prison house and uh, uh, coming to um, perform these works that ultimately end in uh, the gospel being preached to the poor not that the poor cease to exist but the poor have the gospel preached to them good news comes to people with nothing where God gives them everything and that doesn't mean he makes them rich. No, no, the, the rich are spoken to in First Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says to those that are rich in the things of this world, that they're not to be high-minded, but that they're to fear, and that to, they're to communicate, that is, that to share the things that they have with others who are in need for God. And they're, in so doing, they're to build up a... Um, um, well, let me read it. Let me read it to you. I'm just doing free associations here, but there are so many passages of Scripture we could turn to and look to exegete. But look at what Paul says with respect to the different classes of people in the church, which Paul says in the Corinthian letter, it's largely not the, the people in high places. 
you know, God has his elect in high places, yes, but not, not mostly. You see your calling brethren, not many of those kind of people. God chooses a bunch of nobodies. But here in 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, Paul writes in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, and doesn't Paul doesn't seem as if Paul has the sense that that's most Christians. Most Christians are living the prosperous life. Most Christians are uh, putting in their seed faith and getting twentyfold uh, in return. No, no. There's some who are rich in this present age, and he dresses them, charges them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Hey, you may be rich in the things of this age today, but your riches can fly away like 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 an eagle. That's how uh, I think it's Proverbs that says that the riches have that tendency just to fly away. Um, but put their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, and they are to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And again, he didn't say ten percent. Again, they got an abundance to do far more than that. If they're so rich in the things of this world, they're to be generous. They're to be ready to share. When need is there, to respond to it. They're able, and they're supposed to. That's what their love to the brethren would mandate. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, the mark of righteousness in the person who is rich is their willingness to give, to be generous, to share. And they're not just to be noteworthy for how rich they are, they're to be noteworthy for how much they give away. I think that was said of, what was it, the guy R.J. Letourneau? I was reading something about him and just how he was so known, not only for just how rich he had become. I forgot, was it in some kind of uh, farm equipment that he, yeah, some sort of farm equipment that he uh, uh, mastered or produced or had patents on or whatever, but that he was equally rich in good works, equally rich in just a reputation for giving. Out Out of his abundance, he gave abundance. And that should be. I mean, if we're reading about the Macedonians who are given abundance out of their poverty, how much more should the, those who have abundance give out of their abundance? That's the ethic that God gives to the rich in this present age. It's that, um, that virtue of giving. But that's not the normal Christian. The normal Christian is not rich in the things of this world. If you look at the book of James... A book that begins with, upon the note of count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, it's interesting how the New Testament seems to so assume that troubles and testings and temptations will come the way of God's people, that it has a very developed theology of viewing those things as not the end of the world. Viewing those things as actually handmaids in the hands of God to teach us lessons that we would never learn in any other way. There are lessons to be learned in the furnace of affliction that you just simply learn when everything is going smoothly and well. Again, Paul speaks about having the sentence of death in himself that he might learn to trust 
man himself, but in the God who raises the dead. When you're up against the wall and you can't do another thing, but cry out to God for his help. There's no place to turn but to you, O Lord. Then you learn what it means to depend upon God. And oftentimes it's the trials of this life that bring us to that place of fuller dependence. And so it produces good, steadfastness. produces hope. It produces love. It produces all the blessings that Paul speaks about in Romans 5. James speaks about here. Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4. Um, the testings of this life for, for our benefit. And the people that he's addressing are people who are not, again, the rich in this world. You look at chapter 2 and he speaks of the words of verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, and has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You know, the generality of God's people are just not the, you know, living the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. You know, the preachers who preach the prosperity of the gospel, they may be living the lives of the rich and the famous, but their parishioners aren't. The average person in the pew is not. God's chosen the poor of this world to find our riches where? Not in earthly riches, not in the riches of this age, but to be rich in faith. Finding riches in the eternal kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. And hence, we're not to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. He speaks in verse 1 of chapter 2, of a man coming into the congregation who is evidently rich. He has the gold ring. He has fine clothing. Hey, this is a good prospect. If we get this guy to join the church, we get this guy to even tithe. Man, oh man. That's going to be a lot of needs of the church. So you go after recruiting them. And there's actually people who do that very thing. I've heard radio evangelists tell of how important it is to get, get rich people saved. Because when you get rich people saved, how they can contribute to what these radio evangelists or TV evangelists think are important. But that's not where the ethic of Scripture lies. We're not to favor people because they have a lot of money. He says, if you have that man who has rich riches that are displayed upon his finger with rings and fine clothing, and you got this poor man in shabby clothing, he also comes in with the epitome of poverty. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Rich guy, you get the best pew. You get the pick of whatever you want. Whatever you want, we're willing to do. You don't do that. You don't pander to the rich. You don't load the rich either, but you don't pander to them. You treat them like any other visitor that's coming. and You don't show dif- differences of uh, uh, partiality. And interesting, that word for partiality means you don't have respect of face. You don't judge by appearance. You don't see somebody whose face appears to be rich and wealthy. And you gravitate towards that person and not to the poor person. No, you don't have the faith of the Lord Jesus with respect to face or partiality. So there's so much in the scriptures from beginning to end. And I haven't even gotten to the book of Revelation. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Some guy living the prosperous life? Is that what John lived at Patmos, at Ephesus? <laughs> no. 
he's exiled for the gospel, for the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And the gospel and the book of Revelation is constantly speaking about how the testimony of Christ and persecution go hand in hand. How the advance of the gospel brings the wrath of the world. How the empires of this world, typified in the Roman beast, are seeking to pour their wrath upon the saints. And it's their faith in Christ and their patience that ultimately wins the victory. But it's a victory that's in the midst of persecution, tribulation, troubles, affliction, the sufferings of this present life. And that doesn't get removed until glory, until Christ returns, until the new heavens and new earth. Then every tear is wiped away. Then every belly is no longer hungry but full. Then there's fullness of provision for all people everywhere. As, the, as sin and all of its effects, all of its residual effects, are simply banished from a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's where Eden's restored. That's where we come back to the garden. That's where we come back to fullness of fellowship with God and fullness of relationships with one another. And there's no troubles. And, and at that point, we stop singing Mothers of Invention. We stop singing. There's no way to delay the trouble coming every day. Simply because at that point, there is no trouble coming every day. There's simply the riches of, of uh, a kingdom of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit that comes in all of its fullness. So that's why I say you can read 1 Corinthians 11 to them. Yes, you can. You can read John 16 to them. Yes, indeed, you can. But tell them to read the Bible. Tell them to begin in Genesis, read through, stop listening to what you've been told, and ask yourself, what was the situation of God's people in all times, in all places, throughout all history? And the answer is clear. We're afflicted, suffering, persecuted, troubled, a lot of people who triumph by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. Um, But in this world, our hope is not that we're going to enter into some trouble-free zone where troubles are not allowed to enter, or that God's put some kind of a hedge around us so no difficulty will ever fall upon us. Um, That's a lie. That's a lie. And there's no promise that's given where we're immune to that which is common uh, in a fallen world. The sufferings and troubles that are common to man. Well, that was, a, was upon my heart to say, and I hope it was, uh, it was said in a bit way, different way than I anticipated I would say it, but I hope at least it, uh, it rings true. And uh, if so, mission accomplished. So let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to, to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word that is so clarifying upon matters and issues in which there's so much confusion in the world and in the church. And so we pray, Lord, we would be biblical Christians, we would be whole Bible Christians in the sense that we take the entirety of the biblical witness and bring it to bear upon reality 
And so we don't live in a fantasy world. We don't live in the delusions of our own mind. We don't live in the realm of of heretical speculations and false teachings that are just looking to deceive and looking ultimately to to use people and to uh, just bring people under this a spell of, of of deceit. We're thankful for truth. We're thankful that your word is truth and your word is trustworthy. And we're thankful we can consider the things we've considered tonight from your word and um, again have our minds clarified as to many of these issues in which there's so much, again, confusion all around us. So we're thankful for this time of uh, looking in these matters, and we pray that you again would grant us increasing understanding. And then, Father, we're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity to come aside from all of the busyness and hecticness of our week and to commune with you, to commune and fellowship with the saints, uh, to be encouraged in our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we sing, is to be encouraged and drawing near to you in prayer, calling upon your name, to be encouraged just in considering your word. So we're thankful for the blessings we've known today and pray that your blessing would continue to be with us uh, through the days of the coming week, that we would abound in the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ, to the glory and to the praise of God, we'd ask in his name. Amen.